What a great pleasure it is for me to be able to sit with you and open the pages of God's Word and discover wonderful truths and principles that will guardian our life, that's keep guard over it, and will guide our lives if we apply those principles to our lives. Now, that's, of course, the big proviso, isn't it? We have the promises, we have the principles, we have the prophecies, but if we don't put them to, I suppose one would say, put them to practice, then what we know is just head knowledge. It's just academic and it has no bearing on our lives and no power into our life. It doesn't flow into our lives like we would like it to do. Now, we've been looking at some amazing things, and uh, one of those is abandonment. And in our church, I've been teaching and preaching over the last few weeks on this very real problem that the world faces. This is common to so many people, abandonment. The breakdown of marriage, as the Bible declares marriage, the breakdown of marriage, the the giving up of the vows that were made sincerely at the time and then because of circumstance or situations or changes of attitudes or just lustful desires we have put those vows at our feet and trampled over them and because of that there's always great hurt and great pain People, children, of course, primarily, but also the spouses, don't escape a sense of loss. Now, I've never ever in my 55 years of pastoring seen a happy divorce. Oh, yes, I've seen people that are relieved that they have been divorced and now are no longer subject to abuse of one kind or another or neglect or whatever it was that drew them to that decision to terminate their marriage. But this ridiculous idea by some to throw a party to celebrate a divorce is really a horrible, grotesque thing, certainly in my mind. Abandonment. Abandonment. We have many, many, many instances illustrative in the Bible of abandonment Right through from the earliest books of the Bible in Genesis, we have Hagar that felt she was abandoned when she was thrown out of the tent where Abraham and she lived and Sarah had got rid of her and Abraham seemed to comply more with Sarah than take sides on behalf of Hagar. And little Ishmael, of course, suffered that. And then we go on through the scriptures and we find some harrowing events where innocent people, innocent people have been abandoned. They've done no wrong. And when we turn to the book of Second Samuel, you find a principle there that sobers me continually, not just now and again when I think about it, but I have come to grips with this situation not only in my own life and been warned by it, but I've been able to share with others that they don't enter into any alliance, either spiritual or immoral, that will bring chaos 
and will bring loss into their lives. Now, King David was greatly beloved, not only by God, but the people. He was a king that had enduring passion, not only for the nation, but for God and his walk with God. We read that in Psalm 27. We read it in Psalm 51. If David wrote 116, that's Psalm 116, we again have the tremendous statement that is made right at the beginning of that psalm that says, I love the Lord. And David characterized his testimony with praise because he loved God and he served God and he was simplistic in his view of worshipping God above all else. It got him into trouble with his wife, Saul's daughter, and she ridiculed him because there was a sense of freedom that she felt was not regal. It wasn't befitting the king when he brought the Ark of the Covenant up to the city where it was to rest until the temple was built. But David seemed to enter a period where he became complacent. And, you know, that's one of the things that we have to learn. Success is sometimes our greatest enemy. Success sometimes paves the way for a sense of relaxation of spirit. When we are under pressure, when we're under stress, when we're in times of great anguish or need, we are more prone to seek God with tenacity and zeal and with faith. And sometimes that faith is tinged with desperation. But when everything is going well and everybody loves you and you are the absolute cream of the crop of the nation, there is a tendency to relax that tenacity of purpose that brought you to that place. And that we've seen time and time and time again. Leaders are brought into power and they make sweeping changes for the better, for nations, for individuals. And then when they are being lauded and loved and eulogized and made to feel as though there is no one ever that has been as good or ever will be, there is a tendency to just begin to coast or to body surf on the wonderful wave of popularity. This is what happened to David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is how he expressed that. The Bible states very, very plainly, it was the time when kings go out into battle, verse 1, that David didn't. He sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. He stayed at home and he became, well, you might use the word lazy. He became a person that I'll leave it to them to do all the fighting. I've had my moments of uh, fighting and victory, but now I'm going to just take my ease. And as he took that ease, he walked on the roof 
of his own house and was able to look down on the roofs and the uh, terraces of other places and he spied a woman. And you know the story of Bathsheba. You know the terrible complex sin he entered into. Sin is always complex. Sin is always deceptive and destructive. And David began to lust after this woman, called her to himself, seduced her against her will, and because of his overpowering authority, his persuasive personality, she succumbed and gave in to him. And the outcome, of course, was that she was bearing a child. And then, of course, because sin, when it's not confessed and repented of, compounds, he began to lie, he began to be complicit. In fact, he was totally complicit in the murder of the woman's husband, Uriah, made sure that he was on the front line of uh, the attack against the enemies and, of course, was killed. And then that paved the way in David's mind that he could take this widow, Bathsheba, and make her his wife. And he felt that that was a great cover-up and that everyone would be pleased for him because they were pleased with everything he did. Well, God wasn't pleased and God sees through those deceptive masks and strategies and complex arguments that we can in some way invent. And God sees right to our hearts. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And God looked down and was grieved. This man that had been given so much privilege and grace and had served God well out of the purity of his heart had now disgraced himself and the callings of God, not only on him, but also on Israel. And friends, what that did, it broke down a hedge, it broke down a wall of protection and certainly blessing. And from that moment on, chapter after chapter after chapter, you read of David's house, family, the nation, and he personally in disarray. Yes, he repented. But the aftermath was horrendous. So if you're going to step out and do something that you know is totally and absolutely contrary to the will of God, I advise you not to do that. Because not only will you be judged personally for the sin that you enter into, but it'll have a catastrophic effect on even those you love, those that are closest to you. If it's a moral sin, it could break up, it can defile, certainly. It could destroy your marriage and your children. Well, this is what actually did happen. And we find that in the 13th chapter, that we have a very, very awful situation between one of the sons of David and his stepsister, Tamar. And I guess you know the story how this girl, guileless and simple of outlook and pure of heart, was enticed 
on the advice of Amnon's evil, twisted friend, to have her come down into his quarters, look after him as he feigned. He put on an act of being sick. And she was to look after him. And he got permission for his father. He manipulated. Sin will manipulate. Sin manipulates us so that we become very clever in our strategies. And this is what he did. He said, oh, Father, can I have my sister come and look after me? I'm not well. I'm confined to bed. And she came innocently, guilelessly, naively into his quarters. And he began to confess his love for her, which she thought was odd, and then proposed that she lie with him in an immoral act, fornication. And, of course, a horrible act of incest between a brother and a half-sister. But I want to talk to you about the innocency of Tamar. Because this act of Amnon not only brought eventually his own death and division within the family and the breakdown of the family completely, because Absalom, knowing what had happened, was so grieved and so angered about what had happened to his sister that he took matters into his own hands because he felt his father didn't. That aside, I want to focus on Tamar. Tamar is the girl that is wronged. She's the girl that is seduced and savaged. And she just feels utterly, completely devastated by what has happened. And then, to her added horror, she is totally abandoned by Amnon. Because in verse 15, verse 15 of chapter 13, Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, rise and get out. So she said to him, no, no, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And he called his servant and attended him and said, here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Can you imagine that terrible sense of abandonment? And that's exactly how she was. She was abandoned and through no fault of her own. Hers was naivety, certainly innocence, guileless, unsuspecting, and falling into an insidious trap laid by this evil, twisted, lust-filled brother, half-brother. There are many people that are abandoned when they are not responsible for the misdeeds that have come to them. They have been caught in a trap. They have been put in a situation where I didn't ask for this. I didn't mean this to happen. I don't know how it happened. And as a result, they bear a terrible, awful, overwhelming sense of grief, 
sometimes misplaced guilt because they've been cast out. And, of course, the tongues wag, don't they? I'm not talking about this situation alone. I'm talking about so often when people have become victims of another person's sin, deliberate sin, defiant sin, ugly sin, and sin is always ugly, even when it's wrapped up and when it's excused and when it's tolerated by the world. It's still ugly before God. And people that have become victims of other people's sins often feel that they are somehow entangled and sometimes they are embroiled in that sin. And they do. There are many little people that have somehow got caught up in relationships and then without them really knowing what was about to happen have found themselves raped and then bearing a child. And then people turn against them, the victim, and people feel so abandoned, not only by the perpetrators of the crime, but also by those that stand by in judgment and so unkindly point the finger. Well, Jesus is able to cleanse those terrible feelings of dread, of doubt, of shame, of pain, of anguish, and being cut off from everyone. He can fill that empty void. And when people are whispering or chanting or abusing or accusing, the Lord Jesus comes near and he says, Come unto me, all you that labour, and are burdened down, and I will give you rest. How wonderful to have that peace that Jesus alone can give. And he does give a peace that goes without saying. It goes beyond understanding. That's what the Bible says in Philippians. It is a peace that goes beyond our understanding. You know, many times we have peace based on logic. We can uh, produce personal peace when we know in our hearts and we're strong in our minds and understand facts. We can say, no, look, I'm not involved in this in any way, shape or form. And so I very happily detach myself from any false condemnation that people throw at me. And they can say and be and do whatever they choose, but I know I am free. And even if the world rose up, and the law courts rose up and condemned you as guilty. You know that if you are innocent in your heart, you have a peace based on logic and truth. But even when we have no legs to stand on, so to speak, legally or in any other way, and we are indeed feeling a sense, a pang of guilt and abandonment as a result, we can come to him. Just as the woman in John's Gospel, chapter 8, came to Jesus and she was the victim of her own folly and involvement in adultery. She gave herself in adultery to a man and was found and proven to be guilty along with him and they threw her at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, after writing something that we'll never know about, 
on the sands where she lay, waiting, waiting for the judgment to be exerted, the crushing of the skull with the stone that would fall upon her, she heard Jesus say these words, Let him that is without sin cast the first stone. Well, every one of them came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit was given to Jesus without measure. And so what happened was they began to drift away. They knew their own hearts. They knew under the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit that just bathed Jesus and enveloped him. They knew they were being convicted of their own personal heart sin. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. So Jesus said to this woman, Woman, you are abandoned to death and by judgment of those around you in your village, your town. But where are those accusers now? And she dared to look sideways, out one side, out the other, and then twisted her head as she dared to look up. And they'd gone. She said, there's no one here. He said, and neither do I condemn you. So whether you're an innocent Tamar or a guilty woman, unnamed, taken in the act of adultery, you can find a release from that abandonment, a release from that being cut off, damned and condemned. You can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, of course, we know the story back to front of the prodigal found in the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at John, now we go back to Luke that precedes it. And the 15th chapter there, it's an amazing, an amazing picture. And there we have a young man that voluntarily, deliberately, defiantly goes against all reason, goes against family ties, goes against the tradition of the family and says, I want my inheritance. I want that which I've worked for over the years that you've accumulated on my behalf. I want that now, and I am going into the big smoke. I'm going to make my own way in life. It doesn't say in so many words that his father remonstrated with him and pled with him. It doesn't say that he got on his knees and said, son, please don't do this. It says that obviously the boy was entitled, entitled to have that money. And so he took it and with that defiance and arrogance, and again, sin is enough to twist our attitudes, our mind, our outlook and our relationships. It defiles everything. And it certainly defiled the relationship between he and his brother and he and his father. But his father let him go. Now, his father didn't abandon him. There's a great difference here between abandonment and releasing your son to do what he, as an adult, has chosen to do, even if you know 
in your heart what folly it is. So he went and he spent every cent of what he had. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 14. He spent everything he had and he made friends with people in that city. He obviously lived the high life in a low way, low in morals, high in ecstasy, had a marvellous time. And then the money ran out. And his first inclination of what it is to be abandoned comes when all of his friends, seeing that the money had gone, seeing there'd be no more wild, endless parties, they left him. And they didn't help him. And they didn't want him. He was of no use to them. And so the Bible tells us that he became derelict. And one would presume he was a Jewish boy and he ended up in the pit, absolute pit, living with swine, living with the pigs, which are an unclean animal in the eyes of the Jewish people. And he not only lived with them, tended to them, but he had to even share their food. I mean, this, the picture is horrible. Abandonment because of arrogance and sin will certainly bring you down. And when you come down, you come down with a mighty, mighty thud. And that's what happened here. I don't know how long it was before he began to think very, very clearly. It says here in the 17th verse of Luke 15 that he came to himself. In other words, his mind began to lock into reason and logic. And he thought to himself, what on earth am I doing here? How come I'm in this lamentable situation? How come I'm in this place of degradation, defilement? I mean, my father's servants live better than this. And look at me, stripped to nothing. No friends, no dignity, no self-respect. I wonder, I wonder if I rose out of this terrible mess that I'm in and clambered towards my father, weak in body, broken in spirit, and begged to be one of his hired hands, would he accept me? Because if he did, I'd be better off there than I am here. And so the Bible said that he rose and he came to his father. But we have a wonderful, wonderful picture of the Father's heart. In verse 20, as he came, his Father saw him a great way off. The Father never restrained the boy or forbade the boy or tried to prevent the boy leaving as a young man. He left him to his own devices, you might say, but that wasn't abandonment. That was realistic, because had he restrained him and forced him in some way, 
to stay behind. The boy's heart still would be where it wanted to be, with the wild, unclean and impoverished life that it became. No, but the father is there watching. The father is waiting. The father is believing that one day, someday soon, that young boy will come to himself and will come home. And he did. And the father, as you know, embraced him, loved him, welcomed him, saw him cleansed and clothed and wearing a ring of re-established relationship. God can do that. But you know, there was one issue there that we often overlook. And there was the brother, the older brother, standing by. He heard that there was a party coming on. Why, he said. And then he found out that the son that had been so grievous, so wicked, so wanton, so deliberate and defiant, was on his way home. You will find those who resent your repentance. You will find those that criticise your commitment. Those that will stand against your humility and your confession of sin. But I want to tell you, the love of the Father envelops all. And in time, the self-righteous or the brother who didn't feel self-righteous but certainly was condemning of the one that had sinned so grievously will come around. We'll leave it there and we will come back again and talk further about abandonment and how God walks into our lives, throws his arms around us like the prodigal's father, cleanses us, washes us, restores us, clothes us, feasts with us, communes with us, and puts a ring of sonship on our finger that all may know that we have been restored. You feel abandoned, maybe through your innocence and someone else's evil, or maybe you were complicit in some relationship that has indeed forced you to be condemned and in some way alienated from those that you once loved and respected and knew and were honoured by. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. Mm -hmm.